Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 18. And while you're doing that, we'll be praying for the persecuted church today. Uh, and uh, the Lord will be with them. It's just a reminder to us of our brothers and sisters across the world who are, are dealing with all kinds of different persecutions and such. And um, we want to be praying for them, not just today, but every day, right? It's a good reminder, though, to have that. This morning, Acts chapter 18, once you're there, stand with me. We're going to read two, two scriptures from our text this morning. We're going to look at verse 1 and verse 9, and then we'll jump into prayer. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this scripture today. And for the reminder, God, that although we will face circumstances and difficulties and sufferings and pain that will bring opportunity for us to be discouraged, that we can, if we keep our eyes on you, we keep our, our, our minds fixed on you, that we can overcome these things and recognize that you're at work, that you're with us, that you've not forsaken us, that even in the midst of our circumstances, you're doing something great. And we want to recognize, Lord, your sovereignty and, and the things that you allow in our lives are for a reason. And so we ask you to get our eyes on you this morning. If we're discouraged, that we would leave encouraged this morning. And that we would leave with some tools, Lord, that would help us overcome our discouragement moving forward. Because we know the opportunity will always present itself. We want to lift up those uh, who are being persecuted across the world this morning, Father, we want to band together as a body of believers here in Columbia, Tennessee, and pray for the persecuted church, Lord. For those who are enduring hardship and enduring suffering, rejection, reviling, opposition as a result of standing for Christ. Father, we ask you to encourage, to strengthen. God, we ask you to give these who are standing firm in the faith, Lord, give them greater faith. Give them grace upon grace, Lord, that they would see those who are persecuting them with the eyes that you have for them, that you would help them to be compassionate even in the midst of their pain. Lord, we pray for the families of those who are being persecuted, imprisoned, and such, that you would strengthen them, that you would be with each and every uh, spouse and child, that you would strengthen them in their faith that you would help them, Lord, to just be courageous in these times. We ask you, Lord, to just provide what is needed in the, the, the hearts and the, the minds and the lives of these folks, Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you bring them to our minds often and remind us, Lord, to be praying for those who are suffering. Lord, your word tells us that we're to weep with those who weep. And so we are this morning, Lord, although we are here in the United States, we're praying for those who are being persecuted. We thank you for who you are in the midst of all of this, Lord. We know the enemy, no, war, no weapon formed against us shall prosper, Lord. So we thank you for these truths that we can hold on to. We ask you to surround these folks with just... Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that will continue to encourage them as they fight the good fight and press on towards the prize, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for just being with all of those people. And, and we ask you to just, again, bring them to mind. And we ask you to now settle our hearts before you as we open up your word and you just speak to us. We give you, we give you the, the authority and the right, <laughs> as if it seems strange to say, but Lord, we invite you come into the places of our heart, Lord, to speak to us. Change our lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, so 
How many of you guys have ever experienced like crushing discouragement? Anybody in here ever just been incredibly discouraged? You guys are at least honest. Like the other two uh, services are just like a couple people raise their hand. I'm like, come on, dude. You guys being real here? We're in church. You're liars. <laughs> Everybody's experienced discouragement. How do I know? Because I've been there myself. Hey, in almost every aspect of my life, I've experienced uh, discouragement from my occupation to my marriage to parenting or pastoring. I've dealt with discouragement in all these areas and more. The thing that I was thinking about relating to that, though, is that I wasn't discouraged because God wanted me to be discouraged. I was discouraged because I focused on the wrong things in the midst of my circumstances. I got my eyes on the waves in these respective areas of my life and off of Jesus. That's exactly how you get crushed by discouragement, folks. You get your gaze upon the circumstances and off of Jesus. It was Peter, you recall, who uh, was out in the boat in the middle of the night, and the Lord had put him in the boat because they didn't want to feed the people. They were tired, exhausted, and the Lord told him, get in the boat and go over to the other side and I'll meet you. And of course, he went up to the mountain to pray. And about midnight, about the, I think it was like the maybe three in the morning or so, Jesus came walking on the water and they saw this brilliant light coming at them. They thought it was a ghost. You remember what happened? There was a storm. The wind was whipping, the waves were crashing, and Jesus was walking. And remember, Peter saw, oh, it's you, Jesus. And remember what he asked? Tell me to come out on the water, and I'll do it, Lord. Now, you realize the waves were crashing. Like, the storm didn't come after he got out of the boat. The storm existed already. And Peter, he had faith. His eyes were fixed on Jesus. Remember when he stepped out of the boat, though, what happened? His eyes got on the waves, and he began to sink. And he said, Lord, help me. And of course, Jesus pulled him out of the water. And remember what he said? Peter, why did you doubt? You know, when we get our eyes on the waves, the circumstances of our lives it is, that is when we get discouraged. We need to, when we, when we find ourselves in difficult times, man, we, not, we need to keep our gaze on Jesus all the more. Like we need to try and fix our eyes on him even more than we have before. Because if you don't, you will potentially give the, the enemy an opportunity to rout you. He looks for the openings, folks. He's so patient, you know that. Now, the, the enemy can't make you do anything, but he can tempt you in a lot of different ways. And when you allow him a foothold in your life, then he can have his way with you. And he does that time and time again with Christians through this thing called discouragement. Keeps people, uh, you know, preoccupied with themselves. Keeps us self-focused instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I love what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He wrote a book, by the way, called Spiritual Depression. I encourage you to get that book. Incredible book about really ultimately why Christians get discouraged is because we get our eyes on the wrong things. You know, we become introspective so much so that we're focused on ourselves to the degree that we can't see Jesus at all. And so it's that context that he says this, and I, and I make that preface because we're not talking about clinical depression. We're not talking about people who have physiological issues in their brain. But he's talking about Christians who allow their circumstances to, to um, you know, bring such discouragement in their lives that they stop doing what they're called to do. Here's what he had to say. A Christian has no right to be depressed. I put it like that deliberately because the realization of that truth is often the door of escape and liberty. I love that. And when we think about even today as we partake of communion, you know, you, that puts everything in perspective as a Christian. Like we see like, whoa, Jesus died and rose again. How bad, this is as bad as it'll get for you as a believer in Christ. And we're reminded of that when we partake of communion. He says when we get our eyes on the right things, it becomes the doorway for us to get out of our discouragement. He said the tragedy is that when the devil plagues us and gets us into this state, we are not aware of it. 
We're so preoccupied with self-analysis and the cataloging of details of our deficiencies that we do not see ourselves as a whole. Sometimes that's all that is necessary. We suddenly come to ourselves in the reading of the scripture or listening to a sermon or in conversations. We suddenly see ourselves as depressed and miserable Christians sitting in a corner while men and women around and about us are going heedlessly to hell. We are, pre, so, we are so preoccupied with ourselves that we are utterly useless. Wow. When you think about that, he's talking about Christians who just get their eyes off of Jesus and they get their eyes on their circumstances. And then we start thinking, we're not good enough. You know, the Lord did, did it for everybody else but us and all of these other nonsensical things that we can begin to uh, believe for most of us, if we, if we keep our focus on Jesus, we will overcome discouragement. It won't be a problem. It's when we get our eyes off of Jesus that it becomes a problem. In our text today, we find an incredibly discouraged Apostle Paul. He is uh, coming to this place of Corinth and he is discouraged as all get out. But what we find here in our text, in these 23 verses, is five keys to, over, to crushing uh, discouragement. Five keys to, dis, uh, to crushing discouragement. And here they are, if you're taking notes, they're companionship, a shake-it-off mentality, a word from the Lord, unexpected sightings, and serving others. Now, unfortunately, we're not going to get through all of that today. It's going to be a part one, part two message, but I think it's worth camping out here for a couple weeks. And the reason being is because we all deal with discouragement, and I think we need a couple weeks of thinking about this, <laughs> that the Lord would help us go beyond, uh, you know, ourselves and get our eyes fixed on him in, a, in another way. The Apostle Paul, man, he is incredibly discouraged. The first thing I want to talk about here in our text that we find is the state of Paul upon arrival in Corinth. That's why we read verse 1 and verse 9. Verse 1 again, it says, after this, Paul, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And after what? After Paul had faced everything that he had faced in uh, Europe so far, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. Paul had faced nothing but opposition and difficulty, reviling, uh, you know, even, even uh, you know, these guys wanted to kill him. He had been given an, an incredible opportunity there in Athens to stand in the Areopagus there, known as Mars Hill, to deliver a message on the behalf of God. What an opportunity he'd been given. In my estimation, when he left there, he felt his message fell flat. Listen, every pastor has felt that at some point. Almost every pastor probably feels that to some degree every week. You could have said something different. You should have said this or that or whatever, and you can focus on all of those things that shoulda, woulda, coulda. And it can get you incredibly discouraged. It was Charles Swindoll, the master illustrator, who was asked one time, you know, what, what is, uh, you know, how can churches uh, encourage their pastor? And he said, they can find them on Monday mornings because that's when they're the most discouraged. After they delivered their messages. I don't want a bunch of messages tomorrow, okay? I'm just saying, I didn't say that on my behalf. But, but it is true. And it is true, like from the, mo I, I struggle with this all the time, like, oh man, I should have said that differently, or I, I wish I wouldn't have said that, or I wish I would have been clearer on this or that or whatever, and you can just beat yourself up. I've learned over the years to not focus on those things. I've learned over the years to just go, you know what, it is what it is, I can't change it. Lord, if I messed it up, help me to make it right, and then I'll just move forward. That's all I can do. But I remember early on in my ministry, when I was a young, not a young in age, but a young in maturity in, in the pulpit, uh, so some of my first years in the pulpit, I learned quickly that if you don't have thick skin, this isn't the job for you. Because people will come up and they'll let you know what they don't like. And, you know, it's not that they also, also encourage you and all of that kind of stuff, but what do we do? We focus on the negative, don't we? 
It's like you can have 100 people tell you like, hey, that was God really spoke to me in that, but it's the one person that said, dude, you suck, that you focus on, right? Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that a horrible mentality? Why do we do that? It's because we want everybody to like us. Guess what? Not everybody's gonna like you. That's the way it is. And so you have to learn to just get over these things. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, you know, th this man that was the prince of the pulpit, this dude got discouraged. He, in fact, he'd struggled big time with depression. One time he was in a, he was given a sermon to his, uh, to his congregation of 6,000 people. And when he told them for the very first time, like, I struggle with being discouraged and depressed, it, it really, he just heard gasps in the congregation because they couldn't believe that their pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who was used so powerfully, would struggle with such things, to be discouraged. One time he was giving a message and he, uh, he, he thought, man, my message was terrible. And he left and he went home and he was all discouraged. And he said, I studied harder the next week than I'd ever studied before for a sermon. I was so prepared when I get into the pulpit. And in fact, his wife said that he was in uh, Saturday night, dead asleep, speaking his message. Speaking his message. He gets in the pulpit Sunday morning, he delivers the message, and he's, he has, I'm sure he has some expectations. Like, I'm pretty sure people are going to say, wow, that was amazing. And he gets down at the, the, the foot of the altar there, and this young man walks up to him, and he goes, Pastor Spurgeon, I got to tell you, your message last week was amazing. It changed my life. <laughs> you, you don't know what God's doing in the midst of your conversations, you can focus on all those things you shoulda, woulda, coulda said, but what you said is what you said. And do you know that's enough for the Holy Spirit to use? Do you know that? Aren't you glad that people's salvation isn't resting on your words? Like you're like, oh man, I blew it. This person's gonna go to hell because of me. No, they aren't. You can say really simple things and make incredibly impactful uh, ways upon people because the Holy Spirit is at work, folks. We don't have to put that burden on us. But Paul, coming to Corinth, he probably felt like he blew the opportunity in Athens. He dealt with all this difficulty in, in Philippi and Thessalonica. Uh, he had some, some level of success in Berea, but still, the, the Jews from Thessalonica came and were opposing him there. He had to flee there, you know, and all these kinds of things. We know that he's discouraged because he says that when he writes to this church later. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. The word weakness here means a state of timidity resulting from a lack of confidence. Now, some people will say, oh, weakness means Paul was sick. Uh, if, you, if it was just by itself, I might, I might think that, but the following uh, adjectives suggest that he's really timid when he comes to Corinth, that he he's, 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 has a lack of confidence when he comes into uh, this, this city. It tells us that he, was, he came in fear, which describes a state of severe distress, aroused by intense concern for impending danger, pain, danger, evil, etc., or possibility of the illusion of such circumstances. Why do you think Paul would feel that way? Because that's exactly what happened to him in almost every city he went to. He was expecting to face some sort of physical opposition in Corinth. When he walked into the city, he was like, whoa, this place is going to be very difficult. He also came in much trembling, meaning to shake or tremble, often with the Im implication of fear or consternation. This is confirmed by what he says in verses 9 and 10. That's why I read it. The Lord addresses Paul's state in these verses where it tells us, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Why do you think he said it? Because he's afraid. And in other words, in the Greek here, it literally means stop being afraid. That's what it means. He is afraid. So the Lord tells him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why does he say that? Because he's not speaking and he's being silent. He's discouraged in Corinth. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people.
people. Paul, when he came here, he was gun shy, as it were, in Corinth because he was, he, all the things that he experienced, no doubt, but also because of the place that Corinth was. Let me give you a little glimpse. Corinth, by way of introduction, was the Las Vegas of the ancient province of, of Achaia, located 50 miles west of Athens. It, the city was destroyed in Rome, by Rome in 146 BC and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC. Uh, it was such a thriving uh, place that it became the capital of Achaia by the time that the Apostle Paul visits there. It was an important port city. It, there was really two ports uh, that, that belonged to Corinth, one on the east side, one on the west side. And um, uh, it, was, it was located just south of the Isthmus of Corinth there. And in order to get to Corinth, there were really only two options. You could sail the 200 miles around the peninsula. You can see up there the map, this peninsula. It would uh, Go back to the other one. Um, you can see there, it would take you it's 200 miles to come down and around into the port of Corinth. Or, this next slide, you can see there was a land bridge there on that isthmus. And, uh, and they built a, some sort of a, a system, a skidway, in order to, to, to drag boats across the land to get them, and it was only four miles, so that made the most sense. Primarily because that 200-mile journey, they said if anybody, any seaman was preparing for that journey, they should prepare their will because they're not gonna survive. It was super dangerous to take that uh, way by boat. So the Greeks built this skidway across this four-mile isthmus, and it became really, ultimately, the way that they would travel. Now, it was... Uh, in AD 67, Nero, he said, hey, let's build a canal and let's, let's cut a, a, a canal through there so we can just sail through there. And uh, he started that in 60, AD 67. It was completed in, in 1893. So this is what it looks like today. You can see. Pretty amazing. The population of ancient Corinth was 650,000 people. There were 250,000 uh, citizens, free citizens, and 400,000 slaves. That's how they would move those boats across and such. You know, the Roman Empire was massively made up of slaves. The city was permeated there in Corinth with uh, false religion. There were 12 temples at least located in Corinth. It was in the infamous uh, most infamous uh, temple there was dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was there where the thousand pro prophetesses or priestesses, uh, you know, were, would come into the city. These were prostitutes, really, that you would worship Aphrodite by way of sexual morality with these prostitute ladies. Uh, another temple there was in the same light, but it was dedicated to Apollo, and there were male prostitutes really there for the same purpose. This city was notorious for immorality, so much so that they coined a specific phrase in the Greek relating to the city. It was, meant, it was called to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize, really, it meant to be kind of licentious living, you know, sexually immoral, a drunkard and such. When Plato referred to a prostitute, um, he would express it in the sense of saying she was a Corinthian girl, because there, it was known for prostitution. Uh, you, you know, you think like when Paul walked into the city, he was thinking like, dude, this place is like no other place I've ever been before. Man, and Lord, you want to start a church here? He's already discouraged. You can imagine, hey, starting a church is not easy. But when you walk into a city like this, already discouraged, you're probably thinking like, Lord, am I in the right place? Are you sure that you want to start a church here? Paul was discouraged, man. But the Lord brings uh, him some companionship to crush the discouragement that he's experiencing. Look at verse 2. And when he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul was no doubt discouraged 
because he was alone. That is an, a, a great source of discouragement in all of our lives when uh, we, we find ourselves isolated and separated from people. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a way for us to be discouraged. We're geared to be around people. We need that fellowship, companionship. Remember, Silas and Timothy, they stayed in Berea, and from there, uh, Timothy would go to Thessalonica to encourage the church there. Uh, Silas probably went to Philippi to encourage the church there. Paul was by himself in Athens, and now when he arrived in, in Corinth, he was all by himself. No wonder he was discouraged. He was overwhelmed. Not only what he experienced, but the things that he was facing there in the city of Corinth with the immorality and the, and the idolatry and such. You know, it's proven in uh, science that uh, being alone is not healthy for us, both psychologically and physiologically. Uh, it, psych, uh, psychological research suggests that stable, healthy relationships are crucial for our well-being and longevity. According to a study conducted by Choi uh, et al. in 2020, people who have friends and close confidants are more satisfied with their lives and, listen to this, less likely to suffer from depression. Do you know this group, Choi and uh, the other researchers involved in his and his or her, I don't know which one, but in the group of the researchers there, they did a bunch of studies during COVID, during the, um, the shutdowns and stuff, and they looked at people's lives, um, you know, and how, how separation, isolation, all of those things affected people psychologically and physiologically. And they found that people were more depressed, they were more anxious, that they were more given over to substance abuse and physical abuse and all of these kinds of things. And you can read the studies for yourself. There were a bunch of them that were done during COVID. That's because we're designed to be with each other. It has a massive effect on our, our, on our mind when we are by ourselves, when we're alone. We were designed to be with people. Not only does it affect us psychologically, but it affects us um, physically as well. Our longevity is affected. Uh, one study conducted says that if it's found that people who have good companionship in their lives are less likely to die from all causes, including heart problems and a range of chronic disease. The person that did this particular study, Dr. Julianne Holt Lundsted, said when people are low in social connection because of isolation, loneliness, or poor quality relationships, they face an increased risk of premature death. Do you think God is trying to tell us something <laughs> relating to the fact that we need to be around people? What's the first thing that you want to do when you're in incredibly discouraged? You want to pull back. You want to isolate. You want to stay away from people generally. Right, but do you know that's the worst thing for you to do? Like when your life is a train wreck and you know, you've, you've gone through incredible circumstances and such, that's when you need the body of the Christ all the more. I mean, we need each other already, but when you're going through hard times, that's when you need to press in, not pull back. You need to press into the body of Christ. God has something for you uh, through people. You know, not only uh, will they encourage you, but do you know you can be an encouragement to other people in, even in the midst of your suffering? Like you can watch people who are going through difficult times and you're like, dude, I'm just encouraged to be around this person because they're pressing in when they're uh, in the midst of their difficulties. Hey, God designed us to be with one another. He designed us to be in community. Aren't you glad that you don't have to do life by yourself? Aren't you glad that God put people around you? Look around, those people around you, they wanna do life with you. I think, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here. You're like, I don't wanna do life with people. <laughs> You're in the wrong place. No, I'm just kidding, you should. And if we don't, there's something we need to ask the Lord what's going on in our hearts. We need each other. And that is becoming more and more evident in our culture, folks. There's a huge division going on. We need each other. We need to band together. God provides Paul with some companionship in the midst of his discouragement. He sends here uh, these Jews, Aquila. Uh, he's a native of Pontus, which is a, a region located north of Galatia on the Black Sea. Um, and then his wife, Priscilla. They had apparently been kicked out of Rome 
due to some unrest that was going on between the Jews and the Christians there. And wait a second, Paul hadn't gone to Rome yet. How did the church in Rome get established? That's a good question. We don't know. Probably, it probably was established through the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon uh, the, those 120 that were in the upper room and then all of the, you know, 5,000, 3,000 people got saved and God continued to add to the church daily those who were being saved there in Jerusalem. And then those people went out, remember? And they went out all over the place and probably made their way to Rome or somebody from Rome had made their way here, heard the gospel, and they took, the, took it back to Rome and there was a church established. That suggests to us that Aquila and Priscilla were probably Christians before they got to, to Corinth. It doesn't mean that they were. I mean, Paul could have certainly led them to the Lord, but they were probably believers before they came. And we know this for sure because uh, this, this uh, uh, secular historian, uh, Swootinus, describes why Claudius had kicked the Jews out. He said there were riots between strict Jews and followers of Christ in Rome, and so he commanded that all Jews leave Rome, and because um, Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish, they, were, they had to leave. Paul probably met them in the synagogue that he was, he was going to. Even though he was discouraged, he was still being part of the synagogue. He went to the synagogue. The synagogues in ancient days were set up where the men and the women would sit on one side or the other, and there were sections within those groups where you would sit by your occupation. So if you were blacksmith, you might sit here, and then if you were, you know, whatever, something else, you would sit over in this section. Well, Paul, by trade, was a tent maker. Uh, you know, every Jewish male was required to learn some sort of trade, regardless of what they were, if they were even gonna go into become a rabbi or they were gonna be a scholar. Regardless of that, they were still sort of culturally required to know a trade. And Paul, for whatever reason, his dad, you would learn the trade that your father had, and so he obviously was, he, he was a tent maker, which is to say that he was a leather worker. You know, tent makers, yeah, they made tents, but they worked with, pelts, they worked with uh, animal skins, and they would do all kinds of different, they would make all kinds of different things with those animal skins, including tents. The term tent maker uh, in our culture today literally means somebody who's bivocational, somebody who has a, a secular job, but also works in the ministry. Um, so Paul probably met Aquila uh, there in, in the synagogue and got to know him. Hey, I'm a tent maker too, you know. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla then would invite Paul to stay in their home with him and they would give him a job. This is the things that he needed at the time. God is providing for him. He doesn't have any financial provisions to take care of himself. He doesn't want to be a burden on the church in Corinth. And in fact, he tells us that here. We'll read that in a second. But God is providing for him. God sees the fact that, he's, that he is discouraged and God is meeting him where he is and God will meet you where you are. He always does. The question is, will you see him in the midst of these things? If you got your eyes on the waves, you won't. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll see how God is meeting you right where you are. God had given Paul some good Christian companionship. He gave him a way to make a living. He gave him a place to stay. God was providing for him. It tells us here that, um, you know, Paul will go on to mention Aquila and Priscilla in his letter to the Romans as people who were his fellow workers in Christ and who risked their necks for his own life. Like, we don't know to what degree he's talking about. Perhaps it's just the fact that they received him in when he came to Corinth and they risked their necks in that way. They just said, hey, we wanna take you in and we'll help you grow, help you get established here in this city. They locked arms with the apostle Paul in a time where he desperately needed that. Uh, it tells us here that Paul would then, uh, you know, it seemed like he was getting, some of, getting uh, some of his encouragement back and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks with the gospel. And along come side, uh, Silas and Timothy. They finally made it to Corinth and they, they, they came and they, brought great encouragement, not only in the fact that their physical presence would encourage Paul, but they brought a financial gift to Paul that would enable him to then 
leave his tent making job and just to be occupied in the word of God uh, and testifying that Jesus is the Christ. And so, you know, Timothy uh, had come from Thessalonica and Silas had come from probably Philippi. And I'll show you that in a second why I believe this. But Paul, when they showed up, they brought some financial contribution that enabled him to be able to um, be in full-time ministry. 2 Corinthians eleven nine. 9, he mentions this. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden any of you, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul didn't ask for anything when he was in Corinth. And there was a reason for that. You know, he obviously saw in this culture and whatever that maybe they'd been taken advantage of before. Isn't that something that the church is notorious for in our culture, particularly with unbelievers, is that all the church wants is your money. They're just like, how can I get in that guy's pocketbook? Hey, my name's Pastor Tim. You got any money? You know, and and you're like trying to get, is that the way the church operates? Some of them do. Sadly, some of them do. Sadly, there are charlatans that present themselves as, as, you know, men of God who will fleece the flock of God for their own personal gain. Do you know that's always been the case, even in uh, ancient Judaism, that God would speak relating to the religious leaders in the book of Ezekiel, and he would say, you guys are getting fat off the people. All you guys are doing is fleecing the flock of God. All you long for is to take uh, from the people to make yourselves wealthy. And in fact, when Jesus shows up and the religious leaders had converted the temple into a money-making scheme that he would flip the tables over. And he said, you, you, this is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He's talking about the religious leaders who were fleecing the flock of God for their own personal gain. Yeah, that happens. The apostle Paul was like, look, I'm not trying to take anything from you. I'm trying to give you something And he came with something to offer them, not to receive something back from them. And he would go on to say, it wouldn't be wrong for me to ask because, you know, you don't muzzle the oxen. In other words, a worker's worth his wage. If a pastor's in ministry, he's worth being provided for. He's doing doing a job. I know it's only two hours on a Sunday morning, you know, but uh, (laughs) it's way more than that. But, But ultimately... Paul didn't want to take anything from him, but, but God would provide, wouldn't he? And that's what he told them. And in fact, it, it probably was from the church in Philippi. Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And that must have been incredibly encouraging to the Apostle Paul to see the Lord providing for his needs, supplying what did he need. He wasn't getting wealthy in the ministry, but God was providing what he needed in the moment so that he could uh, you know, continue to focus on sharing the gospel. And he did that in Corinth too, by providing a job. And then when Timothy and Silas came, God provided financially that the Apostle Paul uh, could focus on ministry. He needed that companionship. He needed to see God's hand at work in his life to encourage him. And so the Lord met him where he was, and he is on his way to crushing discouragement. But the Lord gives him, uh, I think there's another thing that's required in order for us to crush discouragement, and that is to have a shake it off mentality. Look at verse six. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So as you can see, the great theologian Taylor Swift would say, she penned those important words, shake it off, shake, shake it off, you know. Uh, Now, granted, the song is all about the negative things that people were saying about her. That's what that song is about. All the things that people are saying about her and such. And, and, but the point is clear. We, we can't let others get us down. 
We gotta just press forward. We gotta, we gotta shake it off, man. When somebody says something negative towards you, you just gotta shake it off and move forward. Perhaps it's a circumstance that's happened in your life years ago, a pain, a, a suffering of something, uh, some sort of persecution or whatever. Hey, listen, there's a time to shake it off. You gotta just move forward. You, if you don't, you'll let your past hinder your presence, which guess what, will hinder your future. We have to have a shake it off mentality in the, as Christians because people are gonna say things that are gonna hurt your feelings. People are gonna do things that are gonna maybe even physically hurt you, but you know what? You gotta shake it off. The apostle Paul had this kind of mentality. He, was, he, he had grown uh, accustomed to being rejected. He had grown accustomed to being uh, you know, physically harmed and such. There's a time and a place when you and I need to shake it off. Paul is experiencing yet another opportunity to shake it off here in the synagogue in Corinth, where it tells us that, yeah, some, some believed, but many would ferociously oppose and revile him. The word oppose means to be hostile toward, to show hostility. It involves not only a psychological attitude towards someone, but also a corresponding behavior. When people get hostile, guess what? They get violent. And he understood that. He, ex he, ex he kind of expected that when he walked into a synagogue that there was gonna be some hostility there. Isn't that what Jesus told us? That there's gonna be some hostility in the world towards us? Like we're gonna experience hostility People aren't gonna, if they persecuted him, they'll persecute us and, and such, and yet it shocks us when it happens. We're like, well, I didn't know becoming a Christian was gonna cost me this, but it says that. It says that it'll cost you that. Jesus said you could expect it, in fact. And if, you, if it's not happening, praise God, you know, then it's not happening, but we should expect it. You don't think the culture's gonna get better, do you? You don't think the culture's gonna embrace Christianity and things are just gonna get kumbaya, right? And then the Lord's gonna come back? No, it's gonna get worse. And you know what we need to do? Stay focused. Keep our eyes on Jesus and do our job. Let the world know about him. You know, and what tends to happen when hostility comes is we, we just close our mouths and we stop talking. Do you know that's a tactic of the enemy, right? To keep you silent. But it's something that we should really consider. Jesus said, count the cost when you come to me. Count the cost. It's going to cost you something. And, uh, you know, we need to be vocal about the Lord in all situations. And I think you can be strategic about that. You certainly don't have to go out on the street. When, when I'm in China and it's illegal to proselytize in China, you can't share the gospel on the streets. But you can have private conversations with people, and guess what? That's what you do. But you don't stop talking, is my point. Whether you live in Pakistan or, you know, one of those Middle Eastern countries uh, where there's incredible hostility towards um, Christianity, they're still sharing the gospel, and guess what? People are still getting saved. Praise God that people aren't allowing the hostility to stop them from sharing the gospel. Not only was he opposed, but he was reviled, meaning to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his or her reputation. It's so funny. Uh, my, I have some family members that are Jehovah Witness. And um, they, uh, when, I start, when I became a pastor, you know, of course, that was some of the conversations that I had led one of my cousins to the Lord that was Jehovah Witness, and then he came to Christ and things, and when they heard that, they said, oh, you're now going to the church at Tim? Oh, you're going to the church at Tim? And like, like, they, th like it was an affront on me, you know? And, and they, were, they were speaking against me like I had just started this crazy religion and, you know, I'm, I'm just having my own church. It's like, come worship me. You know, that, that was the idea. Um, and, and people are always do that to you. When you stand for Christ, you can expect to be reviled. People are gonna say nasty things about you, make up things about you. And yet, you can, I mean, Jesus was, you know, he was, he was crucified based on lies. 
So at the end of the day, you can expect these things to happen. You know Paul's response to this, which is interesting? He shook out his garments. He shook out his garment. I don't know if he took his shirt off in the middle of the synagogue or what. He's just like, or his robe, he's like, whoop. And he's like, I don't know what he did. I was like, whoa, you know? And, he, and then he made a proclamation. He said, your blood be on your heads. It was an, it was an incredible symbolic demonstration when he shook the dust out of his garments and then he made that proclamation, your blood be upon your heads. I like the way R.H. Linsky uh, describes this. He said, the act of shaking the garments is symbolic in the, in the same way as shaking off the dust of the feet with this difference that one takes place indoors while the other is performed on the street. Both are often mis misunderstood. Ramsey, for instance, writes, undoubtedly, a very exasperating gesture. Others, a sign of contempt, etc. The act denotes that the dust is left behind and not taken along and thus remains as a witness that the gospel messengers had come and duly delivered their message but had not been received in faith. That dust would testify to the judge that none of the guilty would be able to deny its testimony. In other words, the shaking off of the dust, the dust itself stands as a witness against these people who would reject the gospel. Now, I have to tell you that I think based on understanding this culture and the way, and, and the fact that Jews would do this to Gentiles, I have to think that this was incredibly infuriating to the religious leaders in that synagogue. They weren't used to people doing this to them. They were used to doing this to other people. To shake off the dust off your feet in a town and say, this dust will now remain as a witness that you're a rejecter of the message that we have, we have given. Paul, standing in that, in that synagogue, he says, I'm shaking off the dust. Now you are responsible for the message that you heard and your blood is now upon your head. I have done what I've been called to do. I brought the gospel to you and now you're responsible for those words. It must have really rocked that congregation so much so that we'll see here in a second that the, the ruler of the synagogue ends up getting saved as a result of this. Not in that moment, but later. Here's what's interesting is Paul then goes on to say, he gives a public service announcement there in that synagogue in that moment. And he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I'm gonna go to the Gentiles with the gospel now. Now, to understand what he's saying, he isn't saying he's closed the door on the Jews completely and they can't come to Christ. That's not what he means. Paul had this, this sort of mandate, you know, that he would go to the Jew first. The gospel should be preached to the Jew first. And that makes sense because the Messiah is the Jewish, uh, you know, promised one, the Savior, through, uh, you know, the Jewish faith and, or through the, the Jewish lineage, and so it would make sense for him to do that. But there also comes a point in time in which the Gentiles need to hear the gospel. And Paul would make it sort of the mandate, as we've been talking about, that he would go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. There were Gentiles inside of the synagogue as well. who Some were proselytes who had converted into Judaism, but they had a section in the synagogue where they were just Greeks that would, were considered God-fearers. They weren't ready to make that step into fully, um, you know, accustomizing themselves to the Jewish faith, but they were God-fearing people. Paul makes this announcement to them, and he tells them, hey, uh, I'm now going to go to the, the, the Gentiles, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. Look what he says, and then he does that. He does exactly that. Look at verse 7. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So we're introduced to two new people here in th these verses. We're introduced first to this man named Titus Justus. It says he's a worshiper of God. He was a God-fearer. He was somebody who was, um, you know, 
who had some interest in God, but now he's a believer in Jesus Christ. He has received the gospel, and uh, he has now become a believer. His full name is probably Gaius Titus Justus, which you know, would be common for Roman people to have three names. Paul confirms that his name is Gaius in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, where he says, Gaius, who is hosted to me and to the whole church, uh, greets you. Gaius, who is, a, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So Gaius hosted Paul, but he hosted the whole church. And that's what he's saying here, that it was this man, Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, that he hosted the church. His house was next to the synagogue. And uh, it, it's interesting that when Paul writes to the Romans, he's in Corinth. So it totally makes sense that he's talking about this same person because he's writing from Corinth to the church in Rome. Titus Justus had a house that was right next door to the synagogue. God provided once again for the Apostle Paul. He didn't have to find a place to, to, to house the church, to uh, gather together in worship of the Lord. God provided this house. Do you know how many churches have been planted through houses? It's amazing. From Acts chapter 1 on, that's one of the ways that the Lord plans churches. It's through homes. And in fact, this church was planted in my home. In two, 20, uh, 2009, we planted Calvary Chapel Columbia in my house. And we started with a Bible study, converted it to a Saturday night only uh, you know, service in my house. And as we grew, we got to a point where we couldn't meet in our house anymore. And so we moved to, in, in 2010, we moved to what used to be the YMCA here in Columbia, but it, now it's called uh, Mealtown Rec. So we used to meet there on Saturday night only. We were unconventional in a community of traditionalism, which we, I love Saturday night services. That's why we started one, because I like it. And the Lord's calling us to do that too. But it, it's, it definitely is reaching a different people, you know, which is awesome. That's the point. But we started on Saturday nights, and then 2012, we moved into this building. But the Lord started in, in a house. He's planted tons of churches through houses, you know, and, and such. And he's, he probably, perhaps the church will go back to houses at some point. Who knows? But, but nevertheless to say, Paul uh, has now, the church has been planted in this man's house, and it just happens to be next to this, this synagogue where this ruler Crispus is and how he ends up getting saved, we don't know, but it tells us that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, end up coming to Christ. The Lord, somehow, all that Paul had said to him, speaking about Jesus being the Christ and all of these things had somehow come together. The Holy Spirit drew him. Maybe it was the contemporary Christian worship that was happening next door and he's just like, whoa, what's going on? What's that sound I'm hearing kind of thing? You know what I know for sure? Is I promise you he was seeing a difference in people's lives. Why? Because they had the Holy Spirit. There's a distinct difference in, the wor in, in worship with people that don't have the Spirit of God and then people that do. Right? He's worshiping in a place where the Spirit of God is not inside of people. You know, just because you're Jewish, you have to come to Christ for the Holy Spirit to come inside of you. You know, and that's the, that was the whole point of the new covenant that Jesus said, I'm going to give you something new. It wasn't that necessarily the, the old covenant was just completely wiped away. It's that Jesus fulfilled that and he started a new one. And, and by, you know, by way of coming to Christ, what would happen is then you'd be sealed with the Holy Spirit. What was a sign that you're saved. And the evidence of that salvation, of that sealing is a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. God makes you new when you come to Christ. And so uh, there's no doubt that when, you know, Crispus was seeing these believers, people who he had worshiped with probably in that synagogue, seeing their lives change and the Holy Spirit just drawing him. Even probably, maybe it was the shaking off of the garments that did it. We don't know, but the, but, but the awesome thing is that he got saved and he came to Christ. And this goes to show you that the Apostle Paul, even though he was rejected by this man, the ruler of the synagogue, that he still left the door open. Don't close the door on people. You know, you, you, you give the gospel to people. Don't walk away personally offended because it's not about you. It's about Christ. And when we give people an opportunity to come to Christ, we don't walk away feeling personally rejected. They didn't reject you because you didn't die for them. 
They rejected Jesus. And we need to keep that in mind when we're talking to people. That we leave the door open. Paul left the door open and this dude said, hey, I want to come to Christ. And he ends up, I want to come to Christ. He said in that Irish tone in Corinth in 50 AD. But, but notice that. Not only him, but his whole household ended up getting saved. Like you know, That's funny how it works when people get saved and then, and then it just starts trickling into their family. You know how that works? I got saved, my older brother then got saved, a couple cousins got saved, my dad got saved, you know, because you are a changed person, and God is working in your life, and I can promise you it had nothing to do with anything that I said, but it was the fact of the evidence that God was working in my life, that he had changed my life, that my family members were like, whoa, there's something different going on there. So his whole household ends up getting saved. Not only that, but many of the Corinthians come, came to Christ as a result, and it says that they were baptized. That's interesting that Paul, when he writes his first letter to the church in Corinth, he states something important that we need to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Gaius, or Crispus and Gaius. That's these two guys. That's who he's talking about. Crispus and Gaius, they're the only two out of all the believers in Corinth, according to the apostle Paul, who he baptized personally. And he said, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any more of you because you guys are making, uh, you know, the pedigree of who baptized you a thing in your culture. You're saying, oh, yeah, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Apollo and I was baptized by this person or that person as if that makes you at a different level spiritually. That was the problem in Corinth is they were always trying to find these tears of spirituality, whether it be through baptism, whether it be through, um, you know, spiritual gifts and such. They were very fleshly church. It was interesting, Ray Stedman, he's, he is a Calvary Chapel pastor. He said, I think that, that you could easily say First uh, and Second Corinthians could be written as First and Second Californians. So I don't know, I didn't say it. But, but he lived in California. That's why he said it. He said it a long time ago, by the way. So he would really be saying it now. But, but, but the idea, here, here's, here's the important part of this baptism thing, though. And this is doctrinal. So if, if, if Paul thought, if he believed 100% in regenerational baptism, meaning you have to be baptized to get saved, he wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have said, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. If he thought that baptism was part of salvation, he would have baptized all of them. But he did not believe that. And this is proof text that baptism isn't about getting saved. It's a, a reality that you are saved. It's a public profession of faith that you're saved. Paul only baptized these two men and, uh, and no, no others. And he said he was grateful because of the fleshliness of this church. No church is perfect. The church of Corinth had a lot of problems and the apostle Paul will address them in First and Second Corinthians, but he is at work. God is at work in the midst of these people. We don't have any time to go any further today, but you know, I want to encourage you, if you're discouraged in your walk, whether it be circumstantial uh, discouragement, maybe it's health issues or you know, relational things or whatever it is, wherever you're discouraged, you know, what I want to encourage you to do is first and foremost, don't pull back. Press in. Press in. Get closer to people. You know, invite people that God has put in your life into those places where they can encourage you, where they can counsel you, where they can walk alongside you because God has made you part of a community. The people here in this body, we, we say it all the time, but we, we truly need to be doing life together. And life is tough. Life's difficult. Things happen. But we can, we can, as we bind together in Christ, you know, we can be encouragement. Not only to those who are discouraged, but even the discouraged can be encouragement to us. You know? And, and so I want to encourage you, don't pull back in fellowship. Don't pull back in community when you're dealing with difficult things. Press in. God will provide you with people around you to come alongside you, to help you, to encourage you in the faith. And maybe it's a word for somebody here today that you've been bound 
by your past, like something has happened in your walk and, and you have allowed, uh, you know, some hurt or, uh, you know, some, some, some tragedy or whatever it might be, you've allowed those things to hold you down to where you, you're no longer, you're just kind of privately walking with the Lord and, and no one even knows it. I want to I wanna encourage you today to shake it off, to let it go. To ask the Lord, hey, God, I'm, I'm sorry for holding on to these things, you know, uh, and, and just progress in your walk because you know what? The enemy is using that to hold you down. And if you let him do that continually, then, man, you're going to be ineffective in Christ. And not only that, you're going to be discouraged. God wants to encourage you this morning. He wants to lift your countenance. He wants to, he wants to uh, heal the brokenhearted. He wants to come alongside you. But if you're going to hold on to your hurts and not let them go and give them to him, then you're not going to progress. Shake it off, man. And let the Lord do what he wants to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.